0: Here we go, intro sequence. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Leopera Show. We are delighted to have Doctor Martin Sweatman. He is one of our good friends from the show and a person we admire a lot, scientist at the University of Edinburgh and fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry. He has spent a great deal of his life also studying the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis and the consequences that came about from that hypothesis. Martin, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure ah. to have you here.
1: Hi, Leo. Yeah. Pleasure to be back. Thank you.
0: Well, uh, it's very special always to have you around and I thank you very much for your time. Uh, as I have said many times in this show, the Younger Dryas is a, a a geological period, interests me a lot. And also the impact hypothesis that has been in debate lately interests me a lot. So I want you to just document the situation and have a conversation with you to put it out there. Because um, I get very excited with things uh, and I'm not a scientist. And I think that it's good to have conversations with scientists that can help us to put it a bit more of a rational and calm impression about what we feel and like about the world and its history. So, imagine uh, that I know nothing about this and I ask, what is the Younger Dryas? First, I heard that word around. What is that?
1: Uh, The Younger Dryas, well, that's a a geological period, um, about 1,300 years long. And uh, it happened at the end of the Ice Age, the last Ice Age and it began um, about 10,800 BC. And uh, it's characterized by low temperatures in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. So there was this sudden drop in, in climate, cooling climate very rapidly. Um, so it, it, not everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere, the, the pattern was sort of a bit varied, but overall there's this sort of five to 10 degree Celsius drop in temperatures across the Northern Hemisphere quite rapidly, that carries on for 1300 years, and then the temperatures go back up again by a similar amount, and that's when we enter what we, what's called the Holocene period. Um, so this, basically it's this, it's this geological period of cold climate, like a mini ice age, at the end of the last ice age.
0: What was happening before the Younger Dryas?
1: Well, we were in the ice age for, you know, maybe um, about 100,000 years, roughly, Um, and then, um, there's this, what's known as the last glacial maximum about 17,000 BC, I think, so 19,000 years ago. And then there was this slow warming, um, and then there was quite a sudden warming, which was the beginning of what's known as the Bolling-Alarod period. That's a sudden warming and that lasted, um, a few thousand years. Then temperatures started to decline and that's when this younger Dryas period suddenly begins. So we, we, we'd begun to come out of the, the ice age. There was this warming period, quite dramatic warming, and then suddenly we went back into this sort of mini ice age for about 1,300 years. That's the Younger Dryas.
0: 1,300 years.
1: Roughly yeah. Roughly, yeah.
0: And this was, this was an, a typical in the pattern, the general pattern that the climate was experiencing from the deep past? It was a rupture of the trend? or
1: Yeah. So, you know, the, the, there was this gradual warming climate quite slow, but quite steady, and then there was a sudden warming, that's the Boling allerod mm-hmm. and then this sudden cooling, and that's the Younger Dryas, that lasted 1300 years roughly, and then warming again, suddenly, and then we're into what's known as the Holocene period, which is kind of the modern geological period.
0: Okay, and so the reasons why that trend was um, disrupted are on debate, or uh is there an understanding of why that trend was all of a sudden reverted into a certain direction?
1: Well that's that's the what this is this, this is all about, this um this hypothesis, this younger Dras Impact hypothesis. Uh, so before that I suppose that the the sort of more or less um it wasn't proven, but the sort of generally accepted view uh was probably that this was just a normal part of Earth's climate, that there must have been some mechanism internal to Earth that suddenly caused this cooling, 1,300 years, and then a warming. And um, you know, we, we've seen previous, uh, far back in the Ice Age, over the last 100,000 years, there have been several episodes of rapid warming followed by rapid cooling. So you might get a warming for a few hundred years, maybe a 1,000 years, and then suddenly it cools down again. So they have seen these kind of really rapid, really uh, steep changes in climate over the last 100,000 years. Um, but this one uh, occurred as we were coming out of the Ice Age, and then we seemed to go back into it again. And it, and it was particularly steep. Anyway, so it's generally thought that this is probably just part, part of Earth's uh, natural climate system. But then along came this, this hypothesis that this particular uh, climate episode, this Younger Dryas episode, was, ta- was potentially or perhaps triggered by a comet impact. And so that's that's really what um, all the debate has been about. What's the evidence for this uh, comet impact? What are the consequences of that? Because along with this change in climate, at around about that same time, although there are there's a lot of debate about exactly when, because of the dating methods that are used, I, I'm not very uh, precise. So at about the same time as this beginning of this Younger Dryas period, there seems to have been changes in uh, human cultures, potentially human populations, dropped as well. Uh, And in America, that's known as the end of the Clovis period. And uh, in Europe or the Near East, um, that story is associated, in my view, with Tepe uh, and and a few other places. So there's this this change in in, in human cultures and populations, potentially. Uh, There's this potential change in um, a series of extinction events. So that's what's known as the uh, end Pleistocene megafaunal extinctions. So there seems to be a whole bunch of uh l- large animals that's the megafauna in, in the Americas and in Asia, uh, Eurasia that seem to have gone extinct more or less about that that time. So we're talking about things like um certain species of of mammoth or mastodon, uh ground sloths, horses, you know, um saber-toothed tigers or cats and, and these kind of things.
0: I heard about the North American lion, actually. Is this a prior, perhaps?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to quote you on any specific sure. species, but, um, yeah, there was, there was a bunch of um, species that seemed to go extinct around about that time, but the dating is not very precise, so it's been quite hard to to argue the case that it all happened at a particular instant. Nevertheless, there, there is this thing called, um, there is this, this sort of... Um, stratigraphic feature or what's called like what's called like a horizon in the soil uh in in many places uh in in america in the americas and in europe known as the black mat the younger dryest black mat so this is like a, a layer of discolored soil and it occurs you know it's really widespread not everywhere but it's really widespread and um and so and what they find is that it seems that you know the the, the clothes population in America seem to have gone and uh seem to have disappeared right underneath this black mat, so the black mat kind of forms like a, a barrier if you like in time, uh, and also they find that this this black mat in some places it kind of drapes over the bones of several hmm. uh, uh, you know animals or the skeletons of animals, so it looks as though you know that this this black mat is you know, it's right on top. It sort of perhaps caused um, the deaths of those animals, and therefore maybe the extinctions of, of of entire species.
0: So there is a synchronicity between the findings, the paleontological findings, and uh, and also the signature that seems to be on the soil that something occurred around that time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is one of the debates. So I mean, you can you can kind of divide the debate into. Did, was there a, a, um, a comet impact? Mm-hmm. Did, did this great cosmic impact happen? Did it affect many continents? And then there's the consequences of the impact. So, you know, did it trigger the climate change? Did it lead to megafaunal extinctions? Did it lead to changes in human populations and cultures? So you can kind of divide it out. And so what, what I did recently was published a paper just on the impact evidence. Uh, and which I I came down really strongly in favor of, yes, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty certain, it's almost certain, I would say, that there was uh, this, this cosmic impact. Uh, I don't go into the details, I don't make any sort of strong arguments, again, about the, the other things, but, but lots of other people have, so there's been this, this great debate about, you know, megafaunal extinctions, could that have been caused or triggered by uh, the impact, or was that caused instead by, the rapid changing climate. But you know, if the impact caused a rapid changing climate, then maybe that was actually you know, the, the trigger for the extinctions. So anyway, a, a lot of this debate is to do with um, this boundary layer, which is known as the Younger Dryas boundary, at the bottom of this black mat. Uh, and because um, a lot of the debate about the timings of the extinctions and the timings of the changes in human populations, a lot of that science hasn't been, hasn't been taken into account this this boundary so it's basically ignored the relative uh, not entirely ignored but it hasn't made a great focus on comparing where in the soil the archaeological remains are mm-hmm. found relative to this Younger Dryas boundary so because of that we're reliant instead on things like radiocarbon dating to try and date um the archaeological remains and uh and that's much less precise in, in the sense that you can get a radiocarbon date which can have an error of many hundreds of years. And so then that might look, make it look as though these extinction events and changes in po- human populations were hundreds if not thousands of years apart because of, the, because of the uncertainty in the radiocarbon dating. So there hasn't really been yet a definitive study that's compared all this archaeological data to this boundary layer which we're now saying or I'm I'm saying in in my review paper that you know we we should be treating this boundary layer as a specific you know as a as a real horizon a, a single day essentially in the age of the earth
0: a single
1: day ah. yeah essentially a single day um, well uh-huh. a, lo- a lot a yeah. lot of the evidence a lot of the evidence that we found or that has been found uh, at this boundary layer was probably laid down. Um, well let's see, let's start again so the event the event itself this this cosmic impact probably occurred within the space of a day across several continents and then it can take longer for all of the the signals of that event or what we call the geochemical signals or the debris essentially the debris from this event to settle down so you'll have some of the debris will be will be will be uh, in the form of um sort of microscopic particles, mm-hmm. and that will settle out of the atmosphere quite rapidly within days. Then you've got finer particles that might be lofted high up into the atmosphere. And, and that might take weeks, months, maybe even years. Because to they orbit,
0: up. and then they fall back?
1: Well, some of it into the atmosphere. And then you're right, some of the material might even go into, into orbit. And that again, that would then affect how long it would take to, to settle down to Earth. Uh, And then once it's settled in place on the Earth, you've got other processes that happen, weathering processes. You know, um, you can have rivers and and landslides uh, and all sorts of um, storms because the weather, the the, the climate is changing. That can disturb the soil and it can make it look like things are happening at different times um, from from today's perspective. So um, the the signals, these geochemical signals that are found at this this boundary layer, they as well can have, uh, dates that can differ by, um, you know, maybe a hundred years, maybe a couple of hundred years on different continents. But because of these signals, uh, because these, these geochemical signals, which we can talk about are very specific, um, then we can kind of link all these different dates. We say, look, even though those radiocarbon dates are maybe, you know, a hundred years apart, you know, what's the, you know, the chances of having all the same signals dispersed over several continents. You now, th- these are not separate events, this is probably one single event, so we can take that as like a boundary in time, a single day.
0: When you said this word, uh, those signals are so specific, the question w- would be, what do you mean by so specific and how does it work?
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, the main evidence, and this is what I review in my paper, is in the form of um, platinum, uh, so not solid platinum uh, in like you know, like platinum bars or stones, but in a tiny, <laughs> tiny sort of. Um, it's platinum that's that's mixed up in dust somewhere, uh, and that's got, formed a layer in the soil. So you've got sort of platinum. It's like a, they call it an abundance. So if you measure the platinum in the soil, and you go up in tiny little slices in the soil. In, in various locations, you'll see that there's this platinum spike.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that means that there's some kind of platinum dust layer there. So you've got platinum. You've got things called nano diamonds, which, which are just as the name says, they are nanoscopic diamonds. So you've got this sort of carbon material. And inside that um, are these little tiny inclusions of, that uh, look like various forms of, of diamond. And you have got what I, I mentioned already, these microscopic particles uh, and again, they have certain features that make you think or that lead you to think that these are formed at a very high temperature. So they look like basically tiny little um, solidified drops of mist, mm-hmm. but the mist is made made out of stone and iron. Mm. So this is molten, um, molten um, well, it could be a mixture, actually. So debris- it could be... Could be yeah. So it's debris that's been melted, either from Earth's surface or actually part of the comet itself. Mainly it's the Earth's surface, you know, because that's much, that's a much larger bulk than, than the actual pieces of comet. But so you've got this sort of um, rock and and iron ore that was sort of thrown up in a, in, and melted and and maybe even vaporized and then reformed into little, little sort of fine mist droplets, which then solidify out. So you've got these microscopic particles. And when they when they rapidly quench, they'll have certain features that you um, uh, which, you know, um, because of the the rapid cooling, their surfaces become sort of fractured in a way that which is quite characteristic of rapid cooling. Uh, So there are these particles, microscopic particles, uh, nanodiamonds and and platinum uh, and other things as well, like melted what looks like melted rock, basically Um, melted basically in the form of glass. Um, So you can put all this together. And now those signatures are quite characteristic of a cosmic impact, but they, some of them, well, the platinum, for instance, is also characteristic of a volcanic explosion. So you might say, well, maybe it's volcanism doesn't have to be uh, a cosmic impact. But the other signatures, you know, the diamonds, aren't associated with mm. volcanism. Um, the the iron rich, because some of these microparticles are rich in iron, that's not associated with volcanism. Uh, and what what the, and the signatures that are associated with volcanism are missing. So things like tephra, there's no tephra in these layers. So tephra is like, um, you know, it's like the, the fine ash that comes out of a volcano. Um, and uh, also, um, m- volcanoes typically emit sulfate. so they're kind of sulphur-rich fumes, basically. Uh, and they don't find sulphur in these layers. So um, you know, it's, it it doesn't seem that it's created by volcanic action so we're kind of left with um, cosmic impact now so you could argue perhaps that okay there were lots of small impacts all unrelated perhaps over a few hundred years on different continents uh and these small impacts and it's just coincidence that they happened in, in that t- in that small period uh, and it's just coincidence that the megafauna and the, and the changes and the changes in the human population and the climate change all happened at the same time. Um, but there's a better there's a, there''s a better explanation which is that this was a, a, you know, a massive cosmic event. That's much more likely than having lots of small unrelated impacts. The chances of this being caused by lots of small unrelated impacts is tiny compared to just one event that explains it all
0: what when I hear this competing theory, maybe a set of smaller impacts fell on the earth uh, sorry of, of smaller rocks fell on the earth. Um, I wonder, why is it so hard for some people to embrace the idea that a large impact occurred? Um, why is the need for a competing theory that would include these fragments?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think um, that's that's really one of the, the main hurdles that the idea had to overcome, uh, which is that an impact of the scale that's being suggested was thought to be really unlikely by, by uh, lots of scientists uh so you know it just seemed um surprising it doesn't mean to say it's impossible so the the scale of the impact that we 're talking about would normally or, or or previous to this um impact theory would would normally be thought to occur maybe once in a million years, something like that uh, So the fact that it only happened thirteen thousand years ago uh, led uh, many people i think scientists to think well. Wow, can't be right, you know, it's, or it's unlikely to be true. It isn't, it's not that it can't be true, it's just unlikely. Uh, but that, um, I think that view is probably wrong as well um, because it doesn't take into account um, advances in astronomy, particularly cometary science that have been made. Uh, so that's another part, really, of this impact hypothesis is that uh, it makes a lot more sense if you also um, agree or accept that uh, comet impacts on, on Earth are much more likely than they were thought to be. And there's this idea called coherent catastrophism, uh, which is by some, uh, which is sort of invented by some um, British astronomers, Victor Klube and Bill Napier, mm-hmm. a long time ago, actually. You know, um, back in the early '80s, uh, and they published many papers on it. Um, so there's this theory called coherent catastrophism, which is that you can get occasionally, you know, you'll just occasionally get uh, a giant comet from from the outer reaches of the solar system. And it'll come in and just by chance it will become captured into the inner solar system. And because now it's much closer to the sun, it will start fragmenting and decaying and, and breaking up. Now, we know this happens anyway. Um, so, but the particular feature of this idea is that it, this is a giant comet, and okay, one that we haven't, of the kind that we haven't seen uh, for, for a long time. So, Pardon, um, the,
0: comet that, the comet that theoretically impact the Earth, you mean it would be a giant no, comet? No, no. Oh, sorry. no, no.
1: So what I'm talking about now is, so this, this, this uh, the theory, theory of, of, Bill Napier. of <laughs> coherent catastrophism says that there is the potential occasionally, probably once every 100,000 years, something like that, according to current observations, there's a, this potential for a giant comet to enter the inner solar system and break up. And then it's one of those fragments that's suggested to have then sort of well you don't just get a single fragment when a comet breaks up when a comet breaks up it'll sort of shatter in splinter into lots of debris and so it's one of those sort of debris clouds or swarms that the earth encountered Uh, one of many there would have been many um, of these fragmentation events as this giant comet was decaying and most of them would have avoided earth completely Um, and they would have just sort of gradually kept on decaying into finer and finer particles and that's what makes meteor streams and, in fact, there is a there's a meteor stream out there at the moment in space that we we know of, we know a lot about it, called the torrid meteor stream. It's the largest uh, meteor stream in near-earth orbit. It's not currently the most um, impressive okay. because um because of the way that comet orbits change, we' not we don't currently go through um, a dense part of this meteor stream. And it's very broad because it's so old, it's decayed and it's diffused, and so it's actually we're going at the moment. The Earth orbits through quite a diffuse part of this um, torrid meteor stream. But back in the day when this giant comet was breaking up, you know this this torrid meteor stream would have been incredibly intense at different times. Um, Now that would have this the intensity of the meteor stream that we see on Earth would have waxed and waned over hundreds or thousands of years. And so there would have been a period when the risk to Earth of going through this torrid meteor stream would have been much greater than at other times. And so it's thought that potentially that is when, you know, that this, this event happened, that we were traveling through a dangerous period and we just happened to be struck by one of these uh, swarms of comet debris. I,
0: I, I still struggle to to get a handle on the following. Um, why is it still uh, hard for some people to imagine that such a punctual event could have happened? Uh, I'm, I'm, f- I'm feeling something connected to you know, catastrophism I, I, and gradualism. I, I, didn't,
1: I didn't express that. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. Well, yeah. so there is, Yeah. If you, if you go back further, okay, you're right. So if you go back further, there is this whole concept of gradualism, Um which uh, is a couple of hundred years old. It was invented by, you know, the the sort of the early fathers of geology, if you like. They invented this notion of gradualism that basically all that happens on Earth uh, are the things that we can currently see happening on Earth, Mm -hmm. things like erosion and weathering and so on, slow processes, Um, perhaps with the odd large volcano thrown in because we can observe volcanoes. But a few hundred years ago, it was basically accepted that um, cosmic impacts like well they just didn't happen uh, we didn't know about the asteroids uh, they knew about comets at that time but there were so few comets that we could see that it was thought that they weren't important that they would never cause a problem even though comets have this in in, in sort of mythology and, and uh, ancient tradition comets are viewed with suspicion and danger uh, it was thought by science you know a few hundred years ago that comets weren't worth talking about and the asteroids weren't known and then then there's also darwin's theory of evolution again which was thought it was thought well that proposes that changes happen slowly um, and so combined with the geology and and, and the biological evolution it's thought you know we didn't need to, we don't need to worry about catastrophic events on this scale um, and that's that that view kind of held really until or well, largely, until probably about 1990, perhaps, that, that kind of time. Uh, and then we have, uh, well, that we learned about the dinosaur impact, the Chicxulub crater, which potentially killed off the dinosaurs.
0: May I ask a question here? Uh, was that revelation uh, shocking to the, to the status quo of science of the time, or was it not, not such like a, like a shocker to, to understand that that impact had happened? Yeah,
1: that's my understanding. Um, it was kind of a bit before my time, and <laughs> in a way. I was still going through graduate school, but um, yeah. Um, so my understanding is that that was a real, a real sort of revelation. Um, uh, and that, in fact, the, the, this, 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 you know, the Chicxulub impact that was thought to have exterminated the dinosaurs, that was fiercely resisted as well. Because of this long, long history of gradualism, so even though you know, so you've got this dinosaur killing, killing impact potential, dinosaur killing impact, and then scientists realised, well, okay, maybe these threats are real from asteroids and comets, um, and 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 by now we'd been able to detect some some more asteroids, so we could see that there were more things out there which could be a danger to us. We we're starting to detect them with telescopes and so on, uh, and so then there was this kind of reversal, which was that okay. Yeah, OK, there, there, there can be impacts on Earth, but they're very rare. We don't need, again, we don't really need to worry about them on a human time scale. Um, and Kluber napiers theory of coherent catastrophism was, began, uh, was first formulated about that time as well, which was saying that it's not just the asteroids, it's the comets as well. But it never really got accepted. And I don't understand why particularly, um, because when I've read the papers, uh it's quite a convincing argument to me, um, but nevertheless, that that idea that comet impacts can happen on Earth and that they may even be more of a threat, more uh, regular than the asteroid impacts, I just don't think it was accepted at all. It was, I think, you know, you even had, I think, some astronomers saying that this is just nonsense. You know, it's uh, it's crazy talk. Worst, words worse than that in scientific talk. Um, and then, you know, there, there's a few more, as time goes on, we see more and more things in space, more and more asteroids. We see more and more comets, particularly we find comets or things which have the potential to be comets when they start emitting dust and, and we can see them, but there are these objects in deeper space, farther out in the solar system that we can now detect because our telescope's much better. And we realise that actually there are thousands, and probably there are millions of these things. So now, based on statistical estimates of how many, uh, we're, there's a really very good case for saying that actually there's a there's a bigger threat than the asteroids, and that's the comets. And that's the kind that's exactly, um, and, but that's still that's not accepted. I would say that's still um, debated, and probably not accepted by the majority of the scientists. And now you have this younger Dryas impact, which is saying, well, look. The Only really makes sense is that we think it's a comet impact because it's dis, this impact seems to be distributed across many continents, therefore, it's like a swarm of debris rather than a single asteroid, right? Therefore, it's, if it's a comet impact, then it ties in with this theory of coherent catastrophism, which wasn't accepted. So, the, this the Younger Dryas impact has had lots of barriers to overcome. Uh, you know, geologists, astronomers, uh, archaeologists none of them were looking at this. They all had their own pet ideas mm. for why this younger Dryas period happened, extinction of the megafauna, and so on. There are some very popular ideas in, in different um, fields, and then you've got this new theory that comes along saying, "No, it's another, it's another cosmic impact, just like the dinosaur-killing one." And I just don't—I just think people just couldn't believe it. I think. I think that's crazy talk. But the evidence, I think, now is, is stacked up to the level where it has to be accepted, or at least strongly considered, and I think it has to be strongly considered for all these other things, you know, the, the um, megafaunal extinctions, climate change, and so on.
0: The, the event of the dinosaurs, you mentioned this layer that we can find that, that dates uh, around the Younger Dryas period. Um, has there a similar job, uh, similar scientific work done around the comet of the dinosaurs of matching this impact with a certain layer and the cosmic uh, signatures that it left behind?
1: yes yeah in fact they're they are very similar mm. um so you in the case of the dinosaurs well in the, in the younger dress impact case the the sort, of, the sort of rare metal that we found is platinum okay uh, but for the dinosaurs it was iridium uh, and that was one of the key pieces of evidence that helped to to, to make it a convincing case so there's this layer of iridium found in the soils all roughly of the same date i say soil and we're now talking 65, 66 million years sure. ago, so we're talking about rocks. Um, yeah, and, and so the same kind of things as well, um, you know, um, nanodiamonds and microparticles and so on.
0: All right, so, so well, that 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 means that two similar works have been done and the signatures are similar, so it seems like the case for the Younger Dryas impact is overwhelming, apparently. Is that a good word the, to use, or?
1: Yeah, I mean, the history of these two debates is is so similar. Mm. Um, You know, they both start off being sort of doubted highly. Uh, The evidence stacks up. The same kind of evidence is found. um, And then gradually they start to become accepted. And now I would say that, you know, everyone's heard of the Chicxulub impact that killed off the dinosaurs. And it's kind of, um, it's more or less accepted. Um, And I I suspect that in 20 years' time, because it takes that long, that the Younger Dryas impact will be more or less accepted.
0: Interestingly enough, there is something that uh, you managed to change in my perception of this debate, uh, in this conversation, and that is that I was uh, feeling uh, gradualists, in a way, I'm going to say it from my own perspective, as kind of cowards a little bit. It's like, what are you afraid of? Come on, these events, big events happen. Let's face it, don't hide your head on the sand. But yeah, now I see that, of course, we didn't have the capacity to see outwards in space so much. So it's kind of like you cannot blame them to not be used to the fact that we're surrounded by all these potential impactors, right? The
1: benefit of hindsight, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. because I was really, in a way, defiant to the position of, of the mm. gradualist, in a way. But now, after this conversation, I <laughs> sort of calmed down a bit and I understand, okay, yeah. I see why.
1: I think things are changing quite rapidly in our ability to observe um, things in space, you know, to pick up asteroids and comets. Uh, so if you if you go back 20, 30 years, the, the databases, the, the comet and asteroid databases were not nothing like they are today. Uh, and so yeah, it, it would have been harder back then to have make to have made the argument. But but today, I think we've got pretty good statistics, uh, pretty good databases on on these things. And you know, you, you, there are papers where uh, people do based on the current population of these comets in the outer solar system they're they're called centaurs Mm -hmm. it's just a name for what are basically going to be comets um and they're orbiting in this space between jupiter and uh sort of pluto and so people people have we, we we can see hundreds of these things and because of um how they've been observed there are predictions about how many there are, so based on statistical estimates. And there are the predictions are that there are probably at least a million, probably 10 million, and maybe hundred million of these things. Yeah. So if you use that, if you use those statistical estimates now, along with orbital calculations, so basically you just forward-wind time, do these orbital calculations, and see how often one of these things comes in from the outer solar system and comes into the inner solar system. And you can see actually. We expect this to happen. You know, the younger Dryas impact is entirely expected based on what we can currently see.
0: Has this information changed the way you interact with the world? I mean, like maybe you're sometimes think about. Oh well, maybe the co- actually there is a band from London called The Comet Is Coming. By the way, yeah, uh, it's a brilliant <laughs> okay. band. It's a br- it's excellent. Kudos to them. I love them. So I mean, yeah. this has it changed your perspective of life and how do you go about your daily day to day, or or you leave it on the background.
1: Uh, Well, no, I mean, it it, it certainly uh, has made a big difference, yeah. So I spend quite a lot of my time thinking about these things and uh, writing papers. You know, I've written a few papers now on the subject. This this review review paper, Um, of course, it all started with my my paper on Gobekli Tepe, Mm -hmm. um, uh, which then led to me writing a book and investigating uh, this sort of zodiacal theory which seems to be there at um, Quebec Tepe. That's how I interpret Quebec Tepe using the zodiacal theory. So then, a lot of investigating of symbols uh, through through time, basically in different parts by well, in in mainly Europe and Eurasia. So yeah, uh, and now well, there's all this um, sort of geochemical research. Uh, there's all the astronomy. So yeah, I've I've read a lot of uh, different. Research papers that I would never thought I would have would be reading maybe you know only five years ago, <laughs> things have changed quite a lot.
0: What and co- at the same I time, think- I'm still
1: trying to carry on with my my sort of sure. normal research life.
0: What caught your attention so intensely? There, I mean, there are so many fields of study. Uh, is is it possible to answer that question?
1: Uh, well, um, you know, I, I, some people I guess are just more curious than others. So I've always been curious about you know, the mysteries of the world. That's what gets you into, into physics quite a lot. You know, if you're a theoretical physicist like me, you really want to understand the big mysteries like quantum mechanics and relativity and particle physics, along with all sorts of other things, strange things. So it's, it's the strangeness of the world that actually helps you become a physicist, theoretical physicist particularly. Um, uh, and then, you know, along with that is an interest in ancient archaeology, ancient cultures, and, but not an intense interest particularly until I, 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 I was, became aware of Göbekli Tepe back in about 2008 probably. That's when I first heard of it, I think. And that really interested me. Like a lot of people who were aware of it, Göbekli Tepe was like amazing. It, was, it shouldn't be there. Uh, really, really um, anomalous place with all these animal symbols. I I had no idea what they were at that time, Um, but I kept an interest in it, you know, I kept on the lookout for anything interesting. Um, And then I just happened to, you know, I read one of Graham Hancock's books, Magicians of the Gods, which had this initial decoding, this sort of the key insight into what these animal symbols might mean. Uh, And so then, then everything followed from there. So it was a real sudden change that I wasn't expecting it to happen. I was just reading his book and then, oh, wow, really? And then I could develop it a lot further.
0: Um, So, we just talk about the impact and talk about the fact that it seems uh, pretty. there's a solid case behind it. And uh, then there is a word that comes to my mind right now, which is Abu Huraira, right? Uh, There seems to be a very clear signature that perhaps humans observed this event and were affected by it directly. Um, Can you tell us the story of Abu Huraira and and what what's there that, that that relates to to the theory to
1: the yeah so habi I mean, gira is is a site in northern syria it's only about 100 miles south roughly of gobekli tepe uh, it's another one of these younger dryas boundary sites um but specifically it's a, an ancient village it's one of the world's first hmm. villages um so people were it appears anyway it appears that at the time of the Younger Dryas impact, uh, not just Abu Huraira, there are a few other villages as well that um, archaeologists have found. Uh, these are, are, are people known as the Natufian who lived in this region. So they they had just started building um, settlements. So they were actually you know, staying in one place for the whole year. Abu Huraira was one of them. And uh, yeah, so the Younger Dryas boundary layer uh, is there in the site of Abu Huraira. Um, so there's this layer of all of these things, nanodiamonds, platinum, uh, microspherals, and and Abu Huraira particularly, they've got the molten glass as well. So they absolutely know uh, that some kind of cosmic impact uh, destroyed this little village of Abu Huraira. Mm. Um, and the dating of that is completely consistent with this Younger Dryas impact. So it's another one of these boundary sites. Um, they don't know for how long, but people eventually came back to Abu Huraira. It might have been a hundred years later, maybe several hundred or a thousand years later, but eventually people came back to Abu Huraira uh, and, and started living there again. So you've got these kind of two layers hmm. which are split by this boundary layer. Um, but the whole site, I think, is now underwater because of the uh, the river side where it was located has now been immersed under the water there's a dam basically on the Euphrates I think it's Euphrates one of those rivers mm-hmm. and um to so the whole place is underwater so all of the evidence from that site they had to quickly recover before the dam was mm-hmm. built uh, so there's like speed archaeology they get all the stuff uh, and so the data that they're now currently looking at is is sort of what's recovered and preserved in various labs and museums you know I see. Yeah. Anyway, so this was about 100 miles south of Gebekli, and uh, it's very clear it was destroyed by a cosmic impact. So the people at Gebekli probably would have seen that. Uh, so, it, and there's other uh, there's other evidence as well around the region of Gebekli Tepe um, that correlates with that. So there are there are lakes in Turkey. Uh, Lake Van is one of them. It's not the only one, where there is this layer of soot and charcoal and um, it's quite a thick, intense layer. Uh, and uh, again, the timing is is perfectly consistent with the date of the Younger Dryas impact. Uh, now, the papers where these carbon-rich um, layers are found, they, they attribute these uh, layers to, oh, it's just a forest fire or, or a, something like that. Um, but if it was a forest fire, then it happened at exactly the same time as Goverki Tepe. It was, um, sorry, exactly the same time as the Younger Dryas impact within dating accuracy. Uh, and it's the most intense burning episode over the entire history of Lake Van, uh, up, up mm-hmm. the record that they have, so 20,000 years. So, you know, it's a singularly large and intense episode at exactly the right time so it's not just uh, Abu Huraira there are, there's other evidence in the region of Quebec Tepe that this this cosmic impact event affected the Gebekli you know, Tepe the people there would have experienced this and one of the other effects that it's thought that um, might have happened so along with the debris that's produced you get a lot of um, smoke and, and ash and, 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 and soot uh, from all the fires because there's, there's, there are papers which suggest that about ten percent of the world's uh, surface was satellite. Ten percent of the of man's surface. What percent? Sorry. Ten percent. Wow. In,
0: in yeah. an instant. In an instant. We mean in, in a in, day.
1: One day. In basically one day. Yeah. That's that's the suggestion. So again, I, I've looked at those papers. I've I've analysed, reviewed them, and there's a lot of uncertainty. I think in that estimate. Uh, so I don't think we can be very sure it might have been a bit more it might have been
0: quite we, a lot less can we be sure of saying a large landmass a large piece of
1: There there's a lot of bio, they, yeah, they call it biomass was a lot of burning of biomass uh, and some of that would have been direct hits perhaps or directly um um satellite by yes the actual yeah. air bursts and the impacts but probably most of that is sort of secondary effects so you know, hot debris falling out elsewhere and, and causing fires elsewhere. Uh, yeah, so the people at Gebekli would have been very aware of this um, event. And all of that ash and the soot, uh, It's according to these papers, would have created absolute darkness. That's the suggestion. Hmm. For a period of, you know, six weeks or more. It's hard to imagine. Absolute darkness. So it'd be like living in a cave. So you, you could... You would have to have fire. You know, you'd, you'd have to have uh, some means of making fire to, to survive. Otherwise, you'd just be stumbling around. Same for the animals. Obviously, they don't make fire. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow. Well, um, so, so okay. Uh, and then there is another word that comes about, which is Gobakli Tepe, right? Um, mm-hmm. So so what is Gobakli Tepe? And uh, what is interesting in that place? And why should we pay attention to it?
1: Well, it seems, according to um, the interpretation that I have, it seems that it's a, a memorial or a record of this event.
0: Mm. Uh, so, Of the Abu Huraira uh, event?
1: Of oh. the whole, well, yes, but I, probably specifically Abu Huraira, yeah, probably. But perhaps more generally of, of that day, sure. uh, you know, across the whole world. You know, if, if, if all skies go black completely for for weeks then you know this is affecting lots of people it's a massive event it's never never happened or in your lifetime it's never happened before so yeah um anyway so Tepe is when it was discovered it was really uh, an unusual place an unusual discovery because it, it um it was a site on top of a hill in turkey as i say only about 100 miles north of this abu Hurayra village in Syria, uh, where they found, archaeologists have found, these great uh, megalithic stone circles. There are several stone circles, giant pillars with carvings on them, intricate carvings of animals and other abstract symbols. And it dates to, what, about a thousand years, maybe a little bit more, a thousand years, that's the current dating, after the Younger Dryas impact event. Uh, That's the current dating but that's uh that dating applies to the wall. there are some carbon particles in the in the mortar of one of the walls that archaeologists have dated so that applies to the wall of one of these circular enclosures with the stone pillars and then around that uh, it was thought for a long time there were lots of sort of smaller what are thought to be temples we're not entirely sure I mean they look like temples, but can we say definitively they're temples not quite but there are these round circular enclosures which look like temples. And then around that, there were lots of smaller buildings, which were also thought to be temples by archaeologists. But now, uh, in the in the most recent report, it looks like the Akitepe was an actual settlement on top of the hill, not just a system of temples. Anyway, so the, the really interesting thing from our perspective is that, uh, you know, I, uh, was it back in 2017, I wrote a paper uh, which decoded... The symbols
0: mm-hmm.
1: on these pillars, uh, and there's one particular pillar which can be interpreted as a date written using the astronomical symbols. A date, and that date is, you know, within the uncertainty, of of this interpretation, is the same as the Younger Dryas event. And other pillars can be interpreted as indicating the Torrid Meteor Stream. Uh, so these are all. In my interpretation, these are all astronomical symbols relating to this, this event. Things we don't really know how old Quebec Tepe is, even though the earliest date we currently have is for one of these circular enclosures. Archaeologists have only just realized that this is a settlement and they haven't got down very deep because what happens is this, at that time, people of that time, they built layers of houses on top of each other, layer after layer after layer. They might, they might create, uh, they might build they might build a new layer of housing every hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. Because there are all these layers, and they haven't actually got down to the bottom of Quebec wow. yet, so they don't really know how old it is. Probably, in my view, it's going to go at least as far back. I would suggest. Uh, I wouldn't. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes back to the Younger Dryas event, because that's, in my view, that's probably when the
0: site was. Uh, when the site began. And um, poss-
1: possibly it was a whole bunch of Can you um, refugees. That date?
0: Sorry? Can you repeat the date when you think the settlement began?
1: Probably the Younger Dryas ah. impact, roundabout then.
0: It'll so 1, that, 1, that's, spe- uh-huh.
1: yeah, that's speculation. But simply because of my interpretation of the, uh, the symbols, it would make sense. If Tepe was essentially uh, a bunch of refugees from lots of neighboring places that kind of got together and, and decided to build this system of temples and then started living there.
0: Can you can you tell us? Um, okay, the uh, catastrophe happens. There is this very very massive day. Uh, can you narrate sort of what would be what would happen to humans if that were to occur? I mean, people of that time were. Do you think that this uh, generated the situation in which there was a population collapse and then there was the necessity of migration? It, in in other words, uh, how global was the whole event and. And uh, how possible it is that civilization was heading somewhere and then there was an event that sort of resetted the process that was going on, if one could argue it like that?
1: Yeah, so um, the evidence we have now for the event is across North and South America. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't know whether it sort of covered the entire continents, but there are lots of sites in lots of different places in America and a few now in South America, right down to the tip almost of South America, where this geochemical evidence is found. Uh, South America also underwent uh, uh, a sort of mysterious episode of megafaunal extinctions at about the same time. So you've got North and South America, which are potentially involved. Uh, You've got Europe and what we call uh, the Near East or Southwest Asia, the western part of Eurasia, the larger continent of Eurasia. That's where the um, these geochemical signals have been found, and that's where the sort of when people talk about megafauna and extinctions and and cultural changes and population changes that's what they're really talking about so that's that's about half of the of the world's land mass
0: it would have been affected in a day,
1: yeah, but the the darkness if this certain ash uh if if it's correct that this was in The atmosphere for six weeks or more, but that, that means it's a global event. Nobody on earth, well, everyone on earth would have experienced this darkness hmm. to some degree. Um, because you know, the atmosphere circulation uh, uh, would, within a period of six weeks would have transported things around the, the whole world, so so no, everyone would have seen something. Um, but the, 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 the people and animals in, in, in the Americas and, and Western Europe, it seems, would have experienced the worst effects. It's hard to say exactly, you know, we don't live then, so we have not lived to, it's hard to say exactly what it would have been like, but, um, you know, uh, lots of people presumably would have been killed, and animals outright, on the day of the impact. Following that, you've got darkness, presumably, lots of fires, so lots of the biomass, lots of the vegetation is burned up, so food is going to be pretty scarce, and if you've got complete darkness, how do you find it anyway? So the humans would have presumably been, uh, if there was this darkness, which it seems that there was, would have needed fire, would have been um, congregating around points where there was torchlight or firelight. So that would immediately, you'd have thought, the survivors anyway, would have been drawn to these communities where they could keep the fire going so they could actually see. Um, And that might have been, you know, how things started off bringing people together. Now, before the impact happened, pretty much everywhere on earth, as far as we know, this is the sort of the standard archaeological view, pretty much everywhere on earth, people were hunter-gatherers. Um, even even in the region of Tepe, people are, were thought at that time to be hunter-gatherers. Now, a little bit different, some of the communities or some of the cultures, particularly in the region of what's known as a Fertile Crescent, so particularly these Natufian people, as far as i understand they were the first people as far as we currently know that started to settle down and build settlements Uh, they were still hunter gatherers so they still you know went out to to hunt for their food and they and and pick their food from trees from far away and bring it home and so on they might have started to do a little bit of experimentation with uh, keeping animals or with bringing plants closer to home planting them at home and tending to them there but anyway, they were they were, as far as we know, the first people to actually settle year round in the same place. Because until until those people, pretty much everywhere else, um, as far as we know, um, hunter gatherers would be moving from site to site through the seasons. Maybe staying quite a long time at one site, uh, you know, until the local resources were exhausted, and then they'd move on to another site and camp there for a few weeks or months, and or we'll just keep moving around, hunter gatherer. So these. Particular people in the in in um in this this region of Fertile Crescent and the Anatolian, they were a little bit special. They'd started to settle down and build sedentary communities, and then this event happened, mm. and then we find there is this what appear to be temples, which we've ne- never seen in the before in the archaeological record, uh, or si- or since for for several thousand years. You know, it seems to be a really unique place, Göbekli Tepe. There was this temple. Or what appear to be, anyway, a series of temples on the top of the hill with all of this, what appears to be astronomical um, symbols. So, um, however you look at it, I think, you know, Gebekli Tepi does appear to have played quite a special role in the change in culture or the development of civilization. Some archaeologists uh, kind of refer to it as being as changing everything you know this for a long time archaeologists were looking for the origin of civilization in this region and that was taken further and further back and they were basing their search on what's the earliest evidence for agriculture that we can find because it was agriculture was associated with the origin of civilization or the earliest civilizations it was thought that you needed agriculture to build large communities that could support themselves and that's kind of linked with the origin of civilization, but then you find Gebekli Tepe completely different. It's got these temples which no one was expecting with all these symbols on which no one was expecting. Um, and it seems to be right at the start of um, this this period when um, uh, there was this change in culture sure. and when and then geological
0: events out. happening uh, apparently, a signature of them, right? I mean, yes. the coin sites Sorry? It coincides uh, some sort of geological slash yeah. cosmic signature slash very odd yeah. temple <laughs> appearing yeah. apparently out of nowhere.
1: That's right, and you know who would have needed to build this temple, this anomalous temple, which we never saw before and we don't see again afterwards. You know why was that built? Uh, the archaeologists who are excavating it don't really, as far as I know, think, you know, I don't think they really have a good explanation for this anomalous feature.
0: Is there anything? Is there anything sense similar sense. to Glawakletepe, further in the past, or?
1: There are other settlements. So yeah, so around in that region, dated to about the same time, there are other very early settlements. Um, but there, and but in terms of the symbolism, these sort of T-shaped pillars, uh, well, particularly in, in terms of having temples, let's say, we, we don't currently know mm-hmm. of any other site. Mm-hmm. There is another site um about 40-50 miles from Tepe called Karahan Tepe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that's only just recently been discovered. They're starting to excavate it. And that looks like it's got a lot of the same symbols, uh or similar symbolism to uh Tepe. I can't I don't know whether they found any temples there yet. It looks to be a series of uh of sort of dwellings or houses. I see. But again, they've they've got T-shaped pillars, so it's kind of related to, to what's going on at Göbekli Tepe. But so far, nothing quite on the scale of, uh, in terms of the sort of the architecture of Göbekli mm-hmm. Tepe, this very grand statement, with, with which would have required a lot of coordination and planning among the people.
0: So far, we have done uh, two shows together, and the first one was related to your book Prehistory Decoded, um, and I would hope that you would give me the opportunity to do a third episode eventually together to go in deeper in, so we can go deeper into this theory because it's very fascinating. I'm going to overline quickly what I understand, underline quickly what I understand from this theory. Um, as you are a person who analyzes the motion of particles, am I correct? Uh, is that your your main job in you know, inside a chemical yeah. compound, right? Yeah. And so you're a person who is used to handling immense data sets. That's what I imagine, right?
1: Uh, Well, it's more actually. It's more about theories. I'm I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm a a sort of theor, theoretical physicist, or a physical chemist. So,
0: yeah. Running, running simulations and variables in your head of very large complexity is that a fair, (laughs) fair assessment?
1: Yeah, I do. I do that as well. So things that are called molecular simulations. So,
0: so, yeah. I, so I imagine that you were able to extrapolate extrapolate your toolkit outwards to observe this event and observe the imagery that you have noticed of the event. Uh, better said, to be more precise, not the event of Gobekli Tepe to observe the imagery that you observed in Gobekli Tepe and extrapolate your capacity of build complex models to co- connect a couple of dots together and. Reach to certain conclusions about what gobalitevka may may mean is this a good uh, characterization of your theory
1: uh yeah so pr- pretty much um you know my expertise is kind of at the boundary of chemical physics and um physical chemistry chemical engineering and material science so I have some familiarity with the terms in the in the um Geochemical papers, you know, some kind of familiarity with the mm-hmm. experimental methods uh, and the material science side of it. But when it comes to Gobekli Tepe, what you really need if you're going to interpret these symbols is a statistical method, code breaking, you know, it's, it's based sure. on statistics. You need a statistical method for analyzing the positions, orientations, similarity of shapes in space. Uh, and so, it, it, you know, you need an understanding of how to, to think about the statistical distribution of objects, which is exactly what we do uh, in statistical mechanics. That's my area. Um, we're looking at the statistics of particles, chemical particles, in our you know in that specific case. But you can apply the, exactly the same exactly. ideas. It's not complicated statistics. You know, it's just very basic statistical analysis to so the positions and orientations of shapes on a pillar. It's the
0: same, same mathematics. Exactly. So I, I hope we're going to...
1: Explore. And, 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 you know, you, you kind of hear that sometimes, oh, I'm not an archaeologist, so what do I know about it? Yeah, well, I would say well, the archaeologists aren't statisticians, exactly. particularly aren't statisticians when it comes to analysing the statistics of shapes. So what do they know about it? Exactly. But, you know, they're, they're not the right people to be interpreting um, this particular pillar with all these shapes on it.
0: Yeah, and that's that's precisely what I would like to make a full episode on that theory. I think that three episodes together exploring this idea is a, is a pretty healthy debate. Um, and I, as a last question of this day, I want to clarify the the following. Um, what got me, actually, it's a, the question comes twofold a little bit. Uh, what got me interested into into this topic was a set of Joe Rogan episodes that included the guest Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock occasionally. And um, I'm not going to claim that this is what Randall Carlson said. I'm going to share with you my impressions of what I took from that talk. And what I, The impressions that I took from that talk is that the Laurentide ice sheet melted catastrophically and in a very rapid fashion. Once more. I respect Randall Carlson a lot, so I may be misinterpreting his words. This is my interpretation as an amateur or an observer. But what I understood from him, and that's what really shocked me, when I saw this geological evidence and I started imagining what a flood of that dimension uh, uh, would mean, and also when I started imagining uh, the correlation that seemed to be between myths of great floods and then, oh, a great flood that may have happened. Mm, When... When you're thinking about the melting down of the Laurentide ice sheet, uh, what do you think? Uh, what what should we know about that?
1: Um, yeah. So I mean, I like I like Randall. He's a very um, he's very smart and charismatic guy. Um, I don't know whether I, to be honest, I haven't heard him talk about the melting of the Laurentide ice sheet. So I'm not entirely sure what he, what he talks,
0: says about it's that. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant. Whether it's true or not, it's an excellent watch. I promise you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but uh, as far as I understand it, there are two major melting episodes that sort of bracket the Younger Dryas period. So there's one, which if you remember back to the start of our talk, I mentioned the bolling Alarod period. It was a rapid period, very rapid period of warming before the Younger Dryas, you know, hundreds or thousands of years before the Younger Dryas. Well, there is. we can see from evidence, from oceanic, oceanic evidence, uh, we can see that there was this period of... Um, relatively rapid melting of ice caps and glaciers and so on Uh, so there's this kind of not jump but there's this relatively rapid rise in sea level corresponding to the warming period the Bolling-Allerod warming period and then we've got another relatively rapid rise in sea level at the end of the Younger Dryas corresponding to that very rapid warming period Um, but we don't have a particularly strong signal in terms of sea level change Mm -hmm. at the Younger Dryas impact. There are some papers which say, yeah, we can just about make out a signal. So it's small and the error bars are quite large. So the uncertainty is quite large in in how big an effect this was. But there are some papers that claim that, well, maybe sea level rose around three or four meters at the time of the Younger Dryas impact. Now that's that's not nearly as large as these other melting episodes when sea level changed by I know, something in the region of 15 to 20 meters. Anyway, so there was potentially, there is some evidence for rapid melting of ice caps and ice sheets and glaciers and so on at the time of the impact. Now that might correspond, perhaps a little bit of that could have been direct melting of ice from any comet impacts. But probably that, that contribution is, is relatively small simply because there's just not enough energy uh, to, to melt huge amounts of ice, even in a comet, in big, a comet wow. impact, as destructive as it is. Um, I mean, the event we're talking about is pretty big, but it's, it's still nothing as big as the dinosaur impact. That was on a much, much bigger scale. Um, or the Chicxulub impact. Anyway, so probably, if, if there was a, uh, a, a sort of some, a few meters, perhaps, of sea level rise at the time of the Younger Dryas impact, probably that was caused by um the breaking of ice dams and the release of um lot basically these glacial lakes massive massive glacial lakes that are that are sort of in the region of the um of the ice caps or the ice sheets so and they would have been uh it's thought they were dammed up from time to time and then you get the dam breaks and you get these you know masses of cold water that pours out Goes down the rivers and into the oceans and that's part of that was until the impact theory it was thought that this this release of cold water from the glacial lakes into the oceans that that was the only driver for the climate cooling um according to climate uh, according mm. to our understanding of climate the way the climate works that if you put lots of cold water mm. into the northern oceans then it sure. stops it sort of prevents lots of the ocean circulations happening, and that will then cool the northern hemisphere anyway. So that was the idea. So you know, I, I don't see, uh, I don't understand that the if if Randall Castle has an issue with ice sheet melting at that time, I don't, I'm not sure that there is an issue really. I think it's um...
0: no. Uh, most likely was my perception of it that you leave you leave those talks with the perception that the Laurentide ice sheet uh let's just in case for if there is somebody who does not know what this is uh, there was a lie sheet in North America and this is actually quite well documented one leave that those talks of Joe Rogan with that sensation that this melted in a matter of weeks <laughs> something like that which uh I guess I'm going to take that idea and put it on on my drawer of <laughs> interesting yeah. fantastic ideas that perhaps are not true uh, I again don't claim that that's what Randall Carson said that's sort of the impression, I'm a quite impressionable person, I'm very open, and so perhaps this... I mean,
1: I know, I know that uh, Randall has, has talks frequently about mega floods. Yes. And I think that's to do with this breaking of the ice dams, and
0: he's but I think again, the, the scale he's that against he's talking the, about. the Missoula floods, slash, yeah. um, slash yeah. uh, gradualist vision of those uh, lakes uh, breaking apart just from the breaking of ice dams. He suggests an external factor. That, that Of that, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, yes, yeah. So, and I think that's probably correct. Um, it's just that th- that doesn't mean that there has to be lots of massive amounts of ice melting. It's it's the water's already there yeah. in the lakes. It's just that the lakes burst and the water floods out. Um, I think a big difference that, that Randall has between like the conventional story of those floods, is I think that he talks about them being one massive flood and, and maybe not much more than that. Whereas the conventional view is that there are lots of these floods at uh, different times, they all, you know, the, the dam breaks, the flood happens, it reseals, the lake reforms, it breaks again. And so you get these layers upon layers of, of floodwaters or silts. And I think, I think Randall's view is that probably there was just one or there was one major event which was bigger than all the rest. I'm not sure about
0: that. And to close this uh, conversation that has gone wonderfully about the Younger Dryas in general, what about the crater? What do we know about the crater? Is there something there, perhaps?
1: Yeah, I can't believe we haven't mentioned the crater already. Um,
0: <laughs> well, that's for last.
1: <laughs> so there was this crater discovered in Greenland a few years ago, just a few years ago. Um, and a long time, um, well, it was it was often said that you know, a, a crater isn't necessarily needed for mm. this Younger Dryas impact theory. You know, Even without a crater, we have enough evidence to suggest that it happened, but anyway, there was a crater found in Greenland. It's it, it big news—the Hiawatha crater underneath this, this Hiawatha ice sheet on Greenland. It's about thirty kilometers across, and uh, it's pretty much, I would say, confirmed to be, you know, a big crater. What we don't really know is exactly how how old that crater is, so we can't tie it exactly to the Younger Dryas impact. But we know, in in sort of geological timescales, it 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 must be relatively young, or it's thought to be relatively young, um, because it's under this ice sheet, hmm. and you know, if it had been there for hundreds of millions of years, then this ice sheet, uh, well, the, there is the Greenland ice sheet has been there for at least three million years, and probably because of the the way that the ice sheet moves, it would have scoured the the ground beneath it and, and erased this. Crater. That's
0: what so the that's fact
1: mean. that the crater is still there means that it has to be. It's probably less than three million years old. And according to the the evidence that they have, it could even be as young as the Younger Dryas impact. And so that's that's the sort of great excitement is that maybe this is um, this is the really big uh, Younger Dryas impact crater. Maybe this was the biggest fragment that hit us on that day, it slammed into Greenland. Uh, which is in, it's kind of in the right place, more or less the right place to to fit with the the theory as well. So it's no, it's not quite a smoking gun um, because we don't know the age of it. Interestingly enough, there is another feature in Greenland which looks a bit like a crater. There are some studies which support its identification as a crater, but it's not confirmed as a crater. And it's close enough to the Hiawatha crater that if it is in fact a crater, then probably these two craters were formed at the same time because it's so close you know the, the probability that they're unrelated is really quite small uh if they are both only a few million years old uh, so it looks like there could be potentially two similarly sized craters this other one is about 30 kilometers across as well in fact i think it's slightly larger uh, than the higher author so you know we've got we've got
0: two things there that are going to
1: Interesting, very interesting. I just wish they'd get hurry up and actually date these things.
0: <laughs> so, what are the in your in your Lego pieces that you you're kind of putting together? What is the next Lego piece that you're missing? Is there something that you're looking forward for it to be dated? For example, the dating of the creator. Are there any other let's say uh, research projects are you looking forwards to or that you're expecting?
1: oh, that's the thing that you know. These things you're not really aware of what else is going right. on. At least I'm not. So these things happen out of the blue. Yeah, certainly dating the craters would be very interesting. Um, I think now that the I published my review paper, which you know suggests pretty strongly that we need to take this boundary layer into account. So I'm hoping now that other scientists take this seriously and start relating their archaeological findings to this boundary layer, hmm. then that would help to really uh make you know make make headway on this question of what were the effects of this impact? Were there extinctions? Mm-hmm. No, do we find that lots of the extinctions um sort of come up to a layer of this this boundary layer? Because you know now we don't we have another way of dating right. the archaeological yeah. evidence, not just radiocarbon. We can relate it to relative to this boundary layer. For the and the age of that uh, you know, is supposedly known because it's a single event. Um, so I'd, I'd like to see lots more studies now uh, use this Younger Dryas boundary in interpreting their archeological evidence and get we can make some progress on these other questions, the megafaunal extensions, the human uh, cultural changes. That's what I'd like to see.
0: Brilliant. Uh, well, Martin, thank you very, very much for this time uh, and for also dedicating so much to the Leo Perez show. It means a lot to me. Tell us, where can people find out about your work? And what do you have around uh, to offer? YouTube channel, blog, etc.
1: Yeah, so I you know I have a YouTube channel where um, I go through a lot of the papers to do with the impact evidence. Uh, I have a whole series of YouTube videos. Um, I, I, so for a while, I was creating videos every couple of weeks. I haven't made a video uh, for a while now. Um, I also have videos about the Quebec uh, Tepe and the zodiacal theory and interpretation and so on. Uh, Pretty much the same or similar ideas, anyway, are on my blog. So that's martinswetman.blogspot.com. Uh, there's my book, Prehistory Decoded. And I think that's it.
0: Will we get another book?
1: I hope so, yeah. I, I'm definitely thinking. Uh, I'm planning uh, another book. Um, um, I haven't got time to write it just yet, but it, it's always kind of next year next year I'll, I'll do it but I, i've got a lot of ideas and um i kind of know what it'll be more or less about so it, it'll be focusing on sort of history or evidence for the history of astronomy over you know the last sort of forty thousand years through the time of quebec in tepe up, up to sort of um the bronze age essentially and in, even into the bronze age and i'm really what i'm looking to do is to establish that actually you know Astronomy and the animal symbols and the zodiac, they have a very long history, and therefore we shouldn't be surprised to see them at Quebec Tepe.
0: Brilliant. Uh, as I told you last time we had a conversation, uh, I wish... The, the Younger Dryas uh, community and the people who are paying attention to this topic can perhaps make a little push on social media to see if we can bring you to the Joe Rogan experience. Because, I mean, obviously, <laughs> I, wish, I wish that my window would be larger, but my window is very small. And uh, I really think that your ideas have a great space in the world. You offer a lot of serenity to a very hectic debate. I think this touches a note inside all of us because... Well, it's it's a little bit like finding out that Santa Claus doesn't exist, right? It's Something like, oh, the past, all the story that I had, that were taught, was was told to me, perhaps is not correct. A, B, it also carries with it this uh, this energetic impact that wow, perhaps our humans or our ancestors survived this event, and uh, that has a lot of implications for us as a species. Uh, the fact that all our ancestors, theoretically, if this is a fact, survived this, and uh, I always. I was t- talking to my students recently, and, I was, and they were telling me, ah, I cannot get up uh, from, to, to, from my bed to make some music and work. And I'm like, you know, your ancestors survived as Comet Impact, man. Like, I think you can get up and make some music in your beautiful laptop that runs at who knows how many tera hashes per second. So... Anyways, um, I think that this idea has big consequences and, and it's a really important idea. And uh, that is why I'm going to push some, my social media angle, hashtag, uh, get Martin to Joe or something like that. And let's get you on there because it would be amazing that the millions of people can receive, well, further, because many people have seen already your YouTube channel. Uh, and I hope that it keeps growing. And I hope that your work can continue in illuminating people's lives like it did to mine. So. Thank you very very much for this and we will see you on the next one uh everybody good day and be good take care
1: thanks a lot leo great to talk to you thank
0: you great to talk to you as well